There's one common element, and it's this. God comes where he's wanted. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Good morning, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we're glad you're with us, and we hope to meet you here in person soon. Uh, my name's Luke. I get to serve here as one of the ministers at Plainfield Christian Church. And before we dive into the sermon today, I do want to give you an update. As a lot of you know, our uh, previous senior minister, Steve White, retired in January, and a lot of y'all have been asking me, hey, how's, how's Steve doing? What's he up to these days? Well, I um, regret to inform you that Steve is actually skipping church today to go to the race, um, like a lot of people. So could y'all do me a favor? If you have Steve's number, could you pull out your phone? I'm not joking. Can you please pull out your phone right now? Just two words. Just say church skipper. That's all I need from you today. And we'll be good to go. Uh, We're in a series right now called Renewal, where we are exploring some stories of the great things that God has done through his people, throughout history, throughout scripture. And we're using these stories as a springboard just to dream together as a church about what God might want to do in and through us as Plainfield Christian Church. And, And we said that throughout all of these movements where God does works of renewal and revival and great things through his people, there's one common element. And it's this, God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's wanted. And so our goal for this series is just to want God together. And for the next three weeks, we're actually just gonna drill down on one verse of scripture together for three weeks, and, 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 and it's this. We're gonna explore this verse together, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, where God speaks through the prophet Hosea, and he says this. He says, sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Um, Now, much of the Bible was written to people who are in an agrarian context. They live in an agricultural world. They're out in a rural setting where the seasons of life kind of revolve around the seasons of farming, the seasons of uh, plowing and tilling and sowing your seed and the seed coming up and then just waiting and then harvesting. And so God often uses this agricultural imagery throughout scripture to speak through his people. And he does so here through the prophet Hosea to just kind of throw down the gauntlet for his people. And God says, listen, I can do more through you. I can do more. So get out your plow. Tear up the hard ground. Till up the prairie. Break up your unplowed ground because I want to do more through you. Um, I owe the inspiration for this series to a preacher in New York City by the name of John Tyson. And John Tyson talks about this imagery of, of unplowed ground. And he says that this stands for opportunity unrealized. I like that phrase, opportunity unrealized, because we've all experienced that in our lives, right? Like, like in, in your life, in your heart, in, in your family, in this community, in this church, there is still opportunity unrealized. There's some undeveloped real estate. There's some untapped potential. There's some unplowed ground. There is space for the activity of God in our lives, and he wants to do more through us. 
And so we're gonna just look at this verse together for the next three weeks, and we're gonna dream about what God might wanna do in your life and in this community in and through Plainfield Christian Church. We're gonna talk about sowing and reaping and seeking God. But before we can talk about any of those things, we have to break up the unplowed ground. Because we talked about last week our dream for this community and for our lives and for this church. And if we really do have a dream together, of a church that is flourishing and alive and bonded in a kind of compelling unity that crosses racial and generational and preferential and political lines. If we have a dream for a community that comes to know the goodness of God, if we have a dream for the nations to hear that Jesus is alive and that he loves them, if we have a dream for your family and your heart fully alive in Jesus, if we have that dream, then before we can ever reap that harvest, before we can even plant those seeds, we have to till up the unplowed ground. And specifically today, I just wanna challenge us to till up the unplowed ground, to break it up in three specific ways. And the first one is this. We're just gonna jump right in. The first one is break up complacency with discontent. Break up complacency with discontent. And here's what I mean by that. Um, There was a Christian back in, in Germany who lived there during the Holocaust. And he tells his story about how spiritual complacency ruined their church. He says this, he says, We called ourselves Christians. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we were trying to distance ourselves from it because what could we do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews, like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. But we knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. And by the time the train passed our church, we were singing loudly at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we would just start singing more loudly, and soon we could hear them no more. Although years have passed, I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. Now, it's easy to hear that story and to be horrified, right? And yet I think, to be honest, it's shockingly easy how that same level of spiritual complacency can sneak into my heart. And so God says that if we really want to see a work of renewal, we have to begin by breaking up complacency and replacing it with discontent, breaking up spiritual apathy and replacing it with a holy sense of dissatisfaction at the way things are. In other words, when you hear the train whistle, don't just sit there. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 17, and we read the story of when Paul comes into the ancient city of Athens, and the text says that he was greatly distressed. He was deeply moved. He was angered by the idols that he saw all around the city. He saw how far these people were from God, and he felt this holy sense of discontent. He said, that's not right. Same thing happened in the Old Testament. There's a guy named Nehemiah, and he was one of God's people, but he's working in the Persian Empire, and he hears the story of how in his home city, the city that he loves of Jerusalem, the walls have fallen down, and he feels a holy sense of discontent. He says, that's not right. Nehemiah chapter one, verse four, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, a holy 
discontent. That's not right, he says. And Jesus himself was actually motivated by discontent, a holy discontent that led him to take action. For example, in Mark chapter one, it says, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. And catch this phrase, it says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. Jesus was moved with compassion. The NIV says, I love it, he says, Jesus was indignant. He felt a holy sense of discontent about this. Jesus looked at this man's leprosy and he said, that's not right. Uh, the Greek word for that kind of compassion is the word splunkna. Can you say that with me? Say splunkna. Yeah, that, that was kind of quiet. Like, you wake yourself up. It's kind of a fun word to say. Say it with some gusto. Say splunkna. splunkna. It's kind of fun, right? And, and the word splunkna in the Greek, it's a noun. You're getting your money's worth today, all right? But, but hang with me, all right? It, it'll pay off in the end. It's a noun, and it, it, it does mean compassion. That's how it's translated, but it actually stands for... <laughs> The bowels, that's what the word means because in the ancient Greek culture, they said that the seat of your emotions was not your heart, it's actually your bowels. And we have remnants of this in the English language when we say things like, I just feel it in my gut or my heart sank to my stomach. And so the, the Greeks would say that, 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 that it's your bowels that are the seat of your emotions. This is where you feel things, not, not just in, in your heart. And so... Um, Husbands, can I give you some free marriage advice today? Would that be okay? All right, this is not from the Bible. This is just Luke, but, but hang with me, all right? Um, I think if you really wanna be like a romantic, like the Greeks are, if you wanna speak biblically to your sweetheart, replace the word heart with bowels. Could you just try that for me? <laughs> Honey, I love you with all of my bowels. <laughs> sweetheart, you fill my bowels. I'll, I'll, I'll be done now, I promise, guys, but... Splunkna, right? Like you can feel it. It's this visceral, guttural, like you can feel it as you say it, right? But it's a noun. Throughout all of Greek literature, it's a noun. But then Jesus comes on the scene. And for the first time in history, for the first time in all of Greek literature, in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, compassion becomes a verb. Splunknizomai is the word. We just read it. Jesus was moved with compassion. It's a compassion that leads to action. It's a holy discontent at the way things are that led Jesus to touch people that nobody else would touch. Break up complacency with discontent, just like Jesus did. And this is what the followers of Jesus have always done. I have a picture here, I think, of, of the catacombs. Now, the catacombs are right outside of ancient Rome, and, and they're these underground tunnels. I think we have a picture here coming, maybe in a second. It's not a great picture, so don't worry. But they're these underground tunnels with all kinds of little burial slots for people. They would go bury people underground, and the catacombs were dug by the ancient Christians. And, and there's catacombs all over. I got to walk through one set of catacombs a few weeks ago outside the city of Rome, and there were 23 miles worth of tunnels, 500,000 people buried down there. And that's because in ancient Rome, the only way that a person could really get a proper burial was if they had some status, had some wealth, and they could afford to be the member of a burial association. But then along come the Christians, and they are moved with compassion, splunk nidzami. They look at this and they say, that's not right. And so they, they became registered as official burial associations that were actually just churches disguised as funeral associations. And they said, we're gonna bury people free of charge. 
No matter what your gender is, no matter what your class is, no matter what your nationality is, no matter if you're slave or free, you deserve the right to a good burial. And they're moved with compassion. And that kind of compassion spread across the Roman Empire and it shook the whole foundation and the church grew. Moved with compassion. This is what the followers of Jesus have always done. And in the 1700s, so much more recent, uh, there was a British slave ship captain And he underwent a radical conversion. He met Jesus, and when he did meet Jesus and became a Christian, he looked around at his life's work and he felt this holy discontent, Splunked in so my, that this is not right. I can't keep selling people like they're cattle and transporting them and and selling them off into slavery. And so he, he quit his career as a slave ship captain and he went into the ministry. His name was John Newton, and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace that we all love today. Later in his life, John Newton mentored a young man by the name of William Wilberforce, now, William Wilberforce was a, a wealthy, young, up-and-coming politician there in the British Empire, but he, he was going through this crisis of faith, and, and William Wilberforce said, well, on the one hand, I, I really do want to become a Christian, but I also really want to be a politician, and even then, it some, felt like those things are like mutually exclusive sometimes, right? And, and John Newton said, well, actually, you can be a Christian politician, and William, I believe that God has raised you up for this hour. And he was right. If you know the story, you know that William Wilberforce spent his entire life bringing discontent to the British Parliament, specifically about slavery. He wrote a book called Real Christianity in which he said, hey, Splunk Nidzomai, this is not right what we're doing to these people. It spread around the empire and Wilberforce worked to spread this Christian idea for his entire life until finally, at the very end of his life, the slave trade was abolished throughout the British Empire. And we know the story of the abolition of slavery in America, right, with the Civil War, but the British abolition of slavery was very different. Uh, We in America, we were hesitant to free our slaves because of the high economic cost. It was gonna wreck the economy of the South. That's why it ultimately came to war for the slaves to be set free. But the British Empire was different because the abolitionist members of the British Parliament in a genuine swell of Christian revival chose to do the right thing no matter the cost. They set free every single slave in the British Empire and they compensated their owners for the cost of it even though they knew that that was gonna cost up to half of the annual budget of the empire. The financial burden of this decision was so great that one historian says that the British Empire committed voluntary econocide. Because in a move that we seldom see in politics, they didn't do it out of self-interest, but they did it because on the pages of scripture, their complacency was broken up by discontent. Splunk nidzomai. More recently, in 1952, uh, there was a man by the name of Everett Swanson who flew from Chicago to Korea. And if you're a history buff, you know that in 1952, that's the height of the Korean War. Everett Swanson was a preacher. He went to go minister to the troops, and it was the dead of winter when he was over there. So he arrives in Korea. He gets to the home where he's going to be saying, takes off his coat, lays it on the ground. But immediately, this little kid, this street urchin, this little hooligan kind of swipes his coat and just runs out the door, takes off. And Everett Swanson's like, yeah, listen, I may be a preacher, but I'm from Chicago. You just messed with the wrong minister, pal. And so, so he takes off the door after this kid. And it's kind of like the scene from Disney's Aladdin, you know, the movie. They're like running up and down the streets and like dodging alleys, nooks and crannies, the whole nine yards. And Everett Swanson finally rounds the corner. He's thinking, I got you now, buddy. But he rounds the corner. The kid's just gone. He's vanished. But there on the ground is Everett's coat. And so he bends over to pick up the coat. And he's shocked to see that underneath his coat, there's a child huddled there, shivering in the cold. And at this point, he he looks around and kind of sizes up his surroundings, and he sees 
rags and blankets and coats all around, children huddling under each one, shivering in the winter cold. And Splunk Midzomai, he's, he's moved. He says, this is not right. And so he goes back, he gets him some soup, brings him soup that evening, but he goes back and he can't sleep all night long. He's just burdened. Like God has put a burden on his heart. I've got to do something about this. So he goes back to this place in the morning and there's soldiers there. And the soldiers weren't harassing the kids. They were just kind of nudging them to see which ones had survived the night. And the ones that didn't would be loaded up into carts and hauled off. And Everett Swanson knows that's, that's not right. I've got to do something about this. So he goes home to Chicago and he's having a conversation with a friend of his, a businessman about what he's experienced over there in the Korea with these war orphans. And the businessman, as he's talking, he opens a drawer, pulls out an envelope in his desk and hands it to Everett Swanson. Inside is a check for $1,000. Because the Holy Spirit had convicted that businessman years ago and said, you're gonna help care for orphans and widows and I've blessed you so you're gonna be able to meet the need when the need arises. He wrote a check, left it blank and he was just ready for when the moment came. So all he had to do is put Everett Swanson's name there on the check, and that was the beginning of what we now know as Compassion International. Compassion, right? Splunknidzomai. A holy discontent of looking at the pain in the world around us and saying, that's not right. One of the best things that God has done in our church over the last few years is brought a lot of refugees into our community and into our church. We have a lot of Congolese refugees who've become a part of our church family. They're not a separate group that meets here. They're Plainfield Christian Church. Many of them join us on Sunday mornings for our worship services, but a lot of them don't speak English. So they also, every week, have a worship service here in this room on Sunday afternoons in their own heart language. It's a blast. It's a good time. And all weekend long, yesterday and again later today, we're having an event here for refugees in the Indianapolis area. There's been speakers coming from all over the country, and it's, it's a party, let me tell you. And, and yesterday, I got to sit at a table with one of our Congolese brothers and just hear his story, and he told me a story of how when he was 12 years old, the soldiers came to his village and started bombing, and they killed the parents and kidnapped the babies to hold them for ransom, and he fled to the forest where he stayed for four days just to try to survive. And now he's here in our country as a refugee from genocide. And to sit across from this brother who worships with us, I was deeply moved. And I, I heard his story and I thought, that's not right. But then you come, you worship with these brothers and sisters. And let me tell you, they know how to worship. Like if you want to learn how to suffer well, if you want to learn how to pray well, if you want to learn how to worship well, when's the last time you were out of breath in a worship service? Because mine was yesterday, right? Like running, dancing, hollering. It was a good time. We can learn a lot from these people. And God is doing a genuine work of renewal among us. But then I hear stories of what happens in Texas at an elementary school. And Splunk Nidzumai, like, I'm not willing to be complacent about that. I feel a holy sense of discontent. That's not right. And we live in a country that is being torn apart by violence. And even in our efforts to heal, we become even more divided. And that's not right. And earlier this week, just a few days ago, I got to sit across the table from one of our elected officials here in the state of Indiana, and he looked me in the eyes, and he told me about this whole scenario going on, and he said, we're not going to be able to legislate our way out of this. He said, the heart of the issue is that it's an issue of the heart. And he looked at me and he said, Luke, the only institution in the country that can address the human condition on a heart level is the church. If we want to see renewal in our country, in our community, in our schools, it starts right here. So God, would you break us? 
But unfortunately, the church in America has perhaps never had a worse reputation than it does right now. Um, Survey shows that the fastest growing religious demographic in the country are the nuns, the people with no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, the nuns are not atheists. They're spiritual people. They're open to faith. They're just disillusioned by the church. They're wanting to distance themselves from religious systems and institutions that they see that look nothing like the Jesus who's revealed in Scripture. And who can blame them when we read the stories of corruption and abuse going on in God's church? And I read those stories, and I see those surveys, and I'm not willing to be complacent about that. I feel a righteous anger and a holy sense of discontent. That's not right. And I look out at our community, and anybody who came to our community would think we're living the American dream because we're a wealthy community. We have nice houses, nice cars, white picket fence, 2.5 kids. But we know the stories of what's happening in those homes and homes that are broken by addiction and shallow marriages and sexual confusion and parents who are spending their lives chasing the rat race, living on that hamster wheel and kids who are growing up confused with what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and chasing fulfillment and satisfaction and things that can never satisfy their thirst. And my heart breaks, that's not right. And so if we have a dream for this community We have to become a church that's willing to be broken, willing to do whatever it takes to reach the lost, willing to do whatever it takes to see radical unity, willing to do whatever it takes so that people will see Jesus in us, absolutely whatever it takes. I will not sit here week in and week out just singing louder as the train rolls by. God, would you break us? Break up complacency with discontent. Here's the second thing. If we are gonna let God break up our complacency with discontent, then God's also gonna have to take his plow next and he's gonna have to dig into the hardened preferences of our hearts and he's gonna have to break up our idealism with community. Break up our preferences with real messy community. Because if you look at at moments when God does something awesome and powerful through his people, uh, throughout history in scripture, we've talked about, there's some common elements. It's always God's people returning to his word as the authority that shapes their lives. It's always God's people repenting of their sin. It's always God's people leaning into prayer and becoming aware of the Spirit's presence and activity among them. It's always God's people devoting themselves to acts of love to the people around them. But you know what the other common element is? It's always messy. Every single revival story in history is messy because these these renewal movements, they come with complicated legacies and imperfect leaders, and they always cross class barriers and social barriers and ethnic barriers and political barriers in this kind of radical, gospel-driven unity that gets really messy in a hurry. But if you think about it, life-giving places are messy, aren't they? You know what's not messy? A cemetery. Cemeteries are nice, they're, they're ordered, they're quiet, they're beautiful, they're serene, everybody gets to rest in peace, right? Emergency rooms are messy. I know a lot about emergency rooms. I have three little boys. <laughs> and in emergency rooms, there's, there's trauma and there's screaming and there's waiting and there's frustration and there's blood and all kinds of other unspeakable things that we won't mention here. But which would you rather this church be? A cemetery or an emergency room? Because one is a place of death and decomposing and rot, and the other is a place of life and healing and hope. But if we want to be an emergency room church, we have to be willing to let God break us of our idealism 
and lead us into the messiness of real transformative community. And that means shedding the safety of our spiritual stagnation and heading into the risk of real relationships. Because you know what the most scandalous thing about Jesus was? Wasn't that he was from Nazareth or that he rode on a donkey. It wasn't that he did a bunch of miracles or preached better sermons than the other religious leaders. The most scandalous thing about Jesus was the people he hung out with. Here's the most persistent accusation against Jesus in his ministry. Luke chapter 15, verse two says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's like he's their friend. (laughs) And if you follow Jesus, he's gonna lead you to some really messy people. Now, this is the port of Joppa here. Um, This is in Israel, and and back in the Old Testament, you might remember a story that happened here at the port of Jaffa, because God called a man named Jonah, and God said, hey, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the people of Nineveh, and and, and Jonah said, Nineveh, I don't want anything to do with those messy pagan people. I'm not dealing with that mess. I'm not going. And so Jonah chapter one, verse three says that instead of obeying, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, to that port right there, where he found a ship bound for the port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He said, no way, God, those people are too messy. But then there's another story that happened in Joppa a few hundred years later in Acts chapter 10. There was a man named Peter. He was one of Jesus's followers, and he was staying in this same port city, the town of Joppa, and God gave Peter a vision and some divinely appointed visitors, and God called Peter to go share the good news with a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier. He's not one of God's people. He's one of the people oppressing God's people, but instead of saying, no way, God, he's too messy, Peter goes. And Cornelius ends up being the first Gentile convert, the first non-Jew to become a follower of Jesus and filled with God's Holy Spirit. And Cornelius is our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandfather. One man was in Joppa, and he clung to his idealism and went the wrong way. The other man chose to wade into the messiness of real Christian community, and he went the right way. And because of that, you and I are here today. So what will we do? It's been said that the last genuine American revival was the Jesus People Movement in the 1960s. Um, And some of you remember that time. It was a time of social upheaval. You had the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, all this is going on. And out of the turmoil of that decade were born the hippies. Right? And the hippies were these people who clung to freedom as their highest ideal. We're gonna chase spiritual freedom and political freedom and sexual freedom, and we're gonna do it through delving into things like Eastern mysticism, and we're gonna do psychedelic drugs and music and communal living, and, and you know, you, you, you have the picture in your head, right? Like the, the tie-dyed shirts, the long hair, the peace necklace, the bell-bottoms, Volkswagen van, like some of you were there and you have photographic evidence, and if that's true, I wanna see it. I promise I will not blackmail you, maybe, okay? Um, Now imagine, in the middle of all this going on out in California, a balding middle-aged man in a white golf shirt. Uh, He's the preacher at a little church in California called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and his name was Chuck Smith. Uh, Chuck Smith was not a gimmicky guy. He was just, he just wanted to teach the Bible and see if it would work, and it did. Uh, Chuck Smith and his wife, they felt this 
Splunknidzomai. They felt this holy discontent when they looked at the hippie movement going on around them. They, they felt burdened by all these young people who they saw were utterly lost. And so that led them to step into the mess. And they started welcoming hippies into their home and welcoming hippies into their lives. And the hippies just kind of took over this church. The hippies would wander the beach during the day and then they'd bring their hippie friends to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa at night. And Chuck Smith would just open up the Bible and teach. And then the hippies would play their hippie-esque, groovy Christian folk music that some of you are still into, right? Um, This church was willing to shed their religious norms and do whatever it took to reach those young people. So they did unconventional things. They did outreaches on the beach, and they did baptisms in the ocean, and the church exploded. Now, as you can imagine, that was a tough adjustment for the existing members of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. At one point, um, some of the church leaders put up a sign outside the church that said, no bare feet allowed in the church. Because <laughs> they wanted to protect it. They had just gotten a new carpet, new pews. God had given them this beautiful facility. They wanted to protect it, take care of it well. But Chuck Smith stood up and said that if they ever turned one person away from that church because of bare feet or dirty clothes, he would personally rip up that carpet and tear down those pews. And by God's grace, because a church was willing to break up their idealism and wade into messy community, God did amazing things. Becky Pippert was a campus minister during that time, and she tells this story. She says, I met a student on one of the campuses where I worked. His hair was always messy, and and the entire time I knew him, I never once saw him wear a pair of shoes. A rain, sleet, or snow, Bill was always barefoot. While he was attending college, he'd become a Christian. At this time, a a well-dressed middle-class church across the street from the campus wanted to develop more of a ministry to the students. And they weren't sure how to go about it, but they tried to make them feel welcome. And so one day, Bill decided to worship there. He walked into this church wearing his blue jeans, T-shirt, and of course, no shoes. People looked a little bit uncomfortable, but no one said anything. So Bill began walking down the aisle to look for a seat, and the church was crowded that Sunday. So as he got down to the front pew and realized that there were no seats, he just squatted on the carpet. Perfectly acceptable behavior at a college fellowship, but perhaps unnerving for a church congregation. The tension in the air became so thick that one could slice it when suddenly an elderly man began walking down the aisle toward the boy. Was he going to scold Bill? My friends who saw him approaching said they thought, well, you can't blame him. He'd never guess Bill's a Christian. And his world is just too distant from Bill's to understand. You can't blame him for what he's going to do. And as the man kept walking slowly down the aisle, the church became utterly silent. All eyes were focused on him. You couldn't hear anyone breathe. When the man reached Bill, with some difficulty, he lowered himself and sat down next to him on the carpet. And he and Bill worshiped together on the floor that Sunday. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Break up our idealism with community. I've had the privilege of getting to become friends with Brian Broderson, who's the current preacher at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He's Chuck Smith's son-in-law. He married Chuck's daughter. And Brian and I were talking a couple weeks ago, and he was just telling me stories about that time and, and what God did during that movement And Brian said to me, he said, you know, when we came to Christ, we came out of really radical backgrounds. And when we became followers of Jesus, the only thing about us that changed was our hearts. (laughs) We still had long hair. 
We still did our California thing. We didn't look like anything that church had ever seen before. But because one church was willing to break up their idealism with real community and to say, you are welcome here. Hundreds of thousands of people came to be followers of Jesus through the Jesus People Movement. And today, there are hundreds of Calvary chapels all over the world with that same DNA. So break up our complacency with discontent. Break up our idealism with community. And here's the last thing. Break up cynicism with hope. Break up cynicism with hope. Uh, The reason that we're doing all of this is this prayer that we talked about last week. I want you to make this your prayer for our church during this season, the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk from Habakkuk chapter three, verse two, where he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Because God comes where he's wanted. And we said that anything God has ever done at any time, he can do now. And that anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And that anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for us. Paul says that he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So I don't know what you're feeling today. I don't know how you're feeling about your life or how you're feeling about the future of our country. I don't know how you're feeling about this church, but I want you to know that the future is as bright as the promises of God. So when you come into this place, can I encourage you? Don't come in with cynicism. Don't come in with criticism. Come in with expectancy. Come in expecting God to do something. Come in with hope. Because the same God who did all that is the same God who can do it again. And let's see what God will do. Because Jesus said in Matthew 9, 38 that the harvest is still plentiful. We don't have a harvest problem. We just have a worker problem, he says. The workers are few. So if we want to be workers, if we want to see a harvest, we have to start with the plow. Um, Before Steve retired and became a church skipper, he gave me a gift before he left. (laughs) He gave me this little plow. And this sits on my desk, and I see it every day as a reminder of what I believe God wants to do in us in this season. He wants to break up the unplowed ground because he can do more through us. He wants to make us into the kind of people that he can use. And that's hard work. I don't know if you can see, but the tip of this plow is really sharp. It's gonna hurt. Um, Plowing is really hard work. I, I grew up on a farm. I know how hard it is to break up the unplowed ground. It's really hard to till up the prairie and pull the roots and the rocks and to, and to turn this virgin soil into fertile ground. It's hard work. And Jesus knew that too. That's why I think he said in Luke chapter nine, verse 62, Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He wants us all in. So listen to me. If you're looking for a church where you can take it easy, if you're looking for a church where you're gonna be catered to, then I say this in love, but this will not be the church for you. But if you're looking for a place where you can put both hands on the plow and say, all right, Jesus, let's go to the hard ground. I wanna see a harvest. 
then we'd love to have you in the field with us. Here in a minute, you're gonna see the members of the prayer team begin to stand up. They'll be around the edges of the room there on the sides and the back. And they're there, they're gonna be there every week for you to pray with. Because listen, if this thing's gonna happen, if God's gonna do a work of renewal among us, we have to become people who are devoted to prayer. And so, man, if you wanna pray for God to bring renewal just to break up the unplowed ground, they're gonna be there the rest of the service and after the service in the green lanyards. I'd encourage you to go pray with them. If you've got something going on in, in your life, if there's a person you need to pray for that you wanna pray with somebody about, if you just wanna pray about what's going on in our country or in our community or in this church, I'd encourage you, go talk with them. Go, go pray with them. Um, but if God's breaking up the soil on your heart this morning, if he's tilling up the hard ground, if, if you're feeling convicted of some sin in your life that you need to bring into the light or, or if you have been carrying a burden on your own for far too long and you're just ready to bring it out and to let God use it, then I'd encourage you to go pray with them. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, then I want you to know that anything that God has ever done for anyone, he stands ready to do for you today. And I'd encourage you, go talk to the members of our prayer team. We always would love to walk with you to the cross of Jesus Christ. And as the family of God, now we're gonna take the family meal together. This is what we do every week. This is communion. And for those of you kids in the room, the grown-ups take this when we become followers of Jesus um, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus died for us on the cross and that Jesus rose again to new life and that Jesus brings us new life too. And so this little piece of bread that you're gonna see the grown-ups take, this represents Jesus' body that was nailed to the cross so that we could be forgiven. And this little bit of juice represents Jesus' blood that washes us totally clean. Now, grown-ups, the, the Bible says communion is a variety of different things. The Bible says this communion time is proclamation. The Bible says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remind ourselves every week, Jesus died for us, this is true. The Bible also says communion is participation, that we're participating in Christ's death, that we die and we remind ourselves of how we were raised with him and that this participation in his death reminds us how we are bonded together, not by anything other than the blood of Jesus. But the Bible also says that communion is examination and that this is a time for us to look at our hearts and to look for where the hard ground is and to let God plow it up. Not because we expect you to be perfect, it's actually just the opposite. We expect there to be hard ground in your heart and the blood of Jesus is what washes us clean from that. But I'd encourage you that as you remember Christ's death and resurrection through the taking of communion today, would you just ask him to till up the unplowed ground in your heart and be ready to obey him when he prompts you? I'll give you a moment to take the bread on your own and then we'll pray and take the juice together. Father in heaven, we believe in what you have done. We believe in what you want to do. And we know you wanna use us but we also know ourselves well enough to know how weak we are, Lord. Um, you see us this morning in all of our fear, in our guilt, in our shame, in our worry, in our sadness, in our hope and in our joy. You see everything. And we thank you that you meet us just right where we are and that our only hope is not our own strength, it's yours. So that's why we're gonna take this blood to remind ourselves that through Jesus we get to approach you and through Jesus we are made clean and through Jesus we get to live and move and have our being. So thank you. Every good gift is from you. And Father, we are moved with compassion when we look around our world right now. 
There's so many things that we point to going on out there, going on in here, going on inside of us that we say, that's not right, and we want it to change. You are the hope for that. So Lord, would you just till up the ground in our hearts? Would you do something fresh here so that we would be good soil for you when you're ready to plant the seed? Thank you for the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. This is the blood of Jesus. 